For the last four weeks at Salt City, we've been going through sort of this controversial series. So we've talked about gender and politics and justice and sex. And all of us love that and hopefully got some of our, an- our questions answered from the Bible. But we get a little bit uncomfortable whenever we get into a topical series as a church. Because the way we like to roll is going through books of the Bible. So I'm excited because we're getting back into the book of 1 Peter this morning. So we're looking at two verses in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the first thing we notice is something pretty obvious, and that's that Peter is the one who's writing this pastoral letter. So he's writing to a specific group of people at a specific time, and he's seeking to encourage them. And these people we see happen to be exiles, So they are a diverse group of people. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's people of different socioeconomic status and different races and all those things. And they have been dispersed throughout this region, which is essentially modern day Turkey. And they are suffering because they are being persecuted for being Christians. Another way to translate this word exile would be to call them strangers or to call them aliens. But the main reason they're strangers and aliens is not because the ethnicity that they have is different than those around them. It's because they've placed their faith in Jesus. And because they've placed their faith in Jesus, they believe different things and they live in a different way. And because of that, the persecution from those around them, from their neighbors, and even from the government, is starting to ramp up. Now, I don't know about you guys but I don't like feeling like a stranger. Feeling like a stranger is a very uncomfortable thing. And I was thinking back to when I felt most like a stranger in my entire life. I mean, I could chalk it up to middle school and talk about that for a long time. Weird things are happening in your body. What is seriously going on? Or I could talk about when I went to China for two months. So my, my wife, Melissa, and I, right after we were married, lived in China for two months, and we weren't in like Beijing or Xi'an, one of these major cities. We were in the western part of China, kind of out in the sticks, out in the middle of nowhere. And so I remember riding the bus by myself from one end of this city to the other on a daily basis, and just thinking to myself, I had no idea there were this many Chinese people in the world. And they were thinking, what is he doing here? Because literally everybody on the bus that I would be on and outside of the bus and as I would get off the bus and walk to class and wherever I was going would just be staring at me because many of them had never seen a white person before in person in their life. And so I felt like a stranger. And here's what's true. We might not be experiencing widespread persecution because of our faith as Christians, But after a while of following Jesus, you will begin to recognize about yourself and people will begin to recognize about you that you are different 
and you will begin to feel what is actually true, that your citizenship is not on this earth, that you are a stranger and an exile in a foreign country because of your faith in Jesus. So here's sort of the big idea that's going to tie together what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's that as God's chosen people, we are strangers on earth, which initially might sound like bad news, but Peter paints this beautiful picture for us of why this is good news, because God is with us. So we're going to look at four reasons we rejoice in being strangers on earth. The first one that Peter mentions is that the Father chose us. So in verse 2, you'll remember, it says that we are elect exiles of this Spurgeon according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we have been brought into God's family according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this is really interesting because it's written by Peter. We just finished studying the book of Acts as a church, and something that we saw in the life of Peter is this progression from him thinking that the gospel message was only for the Jewish people to him understanding that the gospel was for all people everywhere. And so Peter is writing to this very diverse group of people having internalized the good news of the gospel. And he's saying to these exiles, people that are spread out all over the place from all different kinds of backgrounds, you have been chosen by God. You are God's people. Now, how can it be that this diverse group of people is God's people? How can it be that they are the elect of God. You see, as Christians, we don't believe that you're one of God's people because of your background or because of certain, some certain characteristic about you, but we actually believe that you are God's child because of his foreknowledge. Now, we're going get, to get into the weeds here for a little bit, Okay. This word foreknowledge, some people think that in the Bible, when the Bible talks about foreknowledge, that it's talking about God knowing ahead of time who is going to choose him and who is going to reject him. But the Bible's concept of foreknowledge is actually different than that, and it's a lot deeper than that. So I want to dive into a couple cross-references to help us understand what exactly Peter is talking about when he says that these exiles of the dispersion have been foreknown by God the Father. Romans 8.29, the Apostle Paul, a contemporary of Peter, writes this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Okay, here's what I want you to see in this passage. I want you to see the logic of the Apostle Paul in the passage. He is saying every person who God has foreknown has been predestined, destined beforehand to become conformed to the image of Jesus, which means that if you are foreknown, you are a Christian 
and will eventually become like Jesus, conformed to his image. So foreknowledge is equated in Scripture to God choosing you out beforehand and setting you apart for this specific purpose of becoming like Jesus. Which when I've explained that in the past, the question people have is, okay, how does God make the decision? Because immediately we come to this conclusion in our own minds, if God has chosen some people, then he has not chosen other people. Why does God predestined certain people and not others. And we need to flip to another place in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So you see what Paul's saying in this passage. God has chosen his people before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He's using the same logic that he used in the other passage. Foreknown to be conformed to the image of his son, chosen that we should be holy and blameless, predestined for adoption. So he uses this familial language to be adopted into God's family. Now, how does God make that decision? Who's in? who's out on his family before the foundation of the world. Here's what scripture says. According to the purpose of his will. In other words, God is saying, politely, none of your business. That's my decision to make. And then he shows us a window into his purpose in this whole thing so that we would praise his glorious grace. Notice it doesn't say so that we'd have arguments about this with each other within the church and our small groups. No, that we would stand in awe of God's grace. This is your comfort, Christian, as you go through the world feeling like a stranger and an exile, that God has chosen you by his grace, for his purpose. He wasn't drawn to anything in you or about you, but he was gracing you with his love. And the picture that he wants us to have in our mind as we think about this is a picture of adoption. Many of you know that my oldest two kids, Luke and Emma, are adopted from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I have some insight into the adoption process. And I'll never forget getting Luke and Emma's pictures for the first time. They were four and two at the time. They're nine and seven right now. And I remember seeing those pictures 
and saying, yes, those are my kids. We had gotten pictures of other kids. I remember there was a, a set of triplet boys, and we felt like there's no way we can handle that. <laughs> let's, let's wait. And so we ended up getting pictures of Luke, Luke and Emma, and in some way we chose them beforehand. It wasn't based on anything good in them. It was based on their need for parents. They needed our love. They needed our support. They needed our affection. And so in some way, we chose them to be part of our family. We didn't consult them in the decision. We chose them to rescue them from a life of suffering and hopefully bring them into a better life. And in a similar way, God, before the foundation of the world, Christian, he had your picture and he chose you. He said, this is my child. And so the ultimate explanation for you being chosen by God, made to be a stranger in this world, is the purpose of God's will. That you would praise his glorious grace. And everything in the Christian life flows from God's grace and his purpose in election before the foundation of the world. And so here's some evidences in our lives as Christians. They won't be perfectly true, but they will be substantially true in our lives that we've been chosen by God. The first one is that the Spirit set us apart. Peter says that we have been uh, foreknown by God in the sanctification of the Spirit. The second part of verse 2. So this word sanctification in the Bible, it can have two meanings. One means the ongoing process of transformation that happens in the life of a believer over time. But the other way that this word sanctification is used in the Bible is it's used to indicate that something has been consecrated or set apart for a holy purpose. And I think what Peter is getting at here is the second meaning. He's saying the evidence that you have been foreknown by God before the foundation of the world is that your life has been consecrated for a purpose. You have been set aside in God's design not to follow the pattern of this world, but to follow after Jesus' commandments. And the way this has taken place in your life is by placing your faith in Jesus the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you and he has transformed you from the inside out. We're not talking about behavior modification here. We're talking about inside out transformation that God has done on the spot. Another way that this moment of sanctification is described in the Bible is as being born again. You've been born again, Christian. Think about who you used to be. 
Think about what your life used to be like. Think about the desires that you used to have. Think about the way that you used to think. Think about all of the ways that you live that you are now ashamed of. As a Christian, you can mark, maybe it's a moment, maybe it's a year, maybe it's a couple year time period, but you know that there has taken place in your heart of hearts and in your soul a deep transformation. The Bible actually predicts that when the Holy Spirit comes, this transformative process from the inside out will be the regular experience of Christians. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's why that's important for us to remember as we live as strangers and exiles in this world. is because we will be tempted to go back to our old way of life. And we all know it doesn't work to just tell ourselves that what we're doing is wrong. We need to be reminded of who we are. So if you're struggling with sin this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, you have to remember that you've been made new. Those patterns of sin that you've been walking in, that's not who you really are. You've been cleaned from the inside out. You used to have this stony, hard heart. And God has put a real heart inside of you, one that beats for him and his kingdom. And the reason that you're back in these patterns of sin and that you're tempted by the world around you and you're tempted to set up shop in this world and make it your home again is actually because you've forgotten who you are. Real transformation has happened in your life. Don't you love stories of transformation? Don't you love to hear those? I think part of the reason we love to hear stories of transformation is because it reminds us of our own transformation, causes us to look above this world to the transforming power of God, and we remember who we are. One of those stories that deeply impacted me was a few years ago, I did a wedding of a friend named Wren. And Wren grew up in an Amish family and then rebelled against that, which I think I would too. And, and then he, he went totally to the other extreme and started partying as hard as he can. And then at some point, he sees a Facebook message from one of his friends and they're talking about how awesome their church is. And he shows up to our church and he places his faith on, in Jesus, and his life is entirely transformed. A short time later, he gets married. So I'm at his wedding, and he's sharing his testimony with this crowd. There's no dancing, there's no drinking, and the room is very plain because he has his Amish relatives in the crowd. And then he also has all of his old drinking buddies in the crowd. And he basically just goes off for 25 minutes about how Jesus had radically and totally transformed his life. And he sort of went around the room 
and talked to each group of people and specifically shared his testimony and the radical change that had taken place in his life and wanted them all to know that the reason for that transformation was Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you have to have like an Amish to drinking to Christian testimony to be a real Christian. But what I am saying is, there has to have been a real transformation that's taken place in your life. Something that always worries me in our churches is when somebody writes on their baptism testimony form or on their form to become a member, they write that they've always been a Christian. You haven't always been a Christian. You haven't. If you've always been a Christian, you've never been a Christian at all. Because being a Christian is a radical inside-out transformation that takes place at the level of the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit as you place your faith in Jesus and you can't do that when you're zero. All right? Can we just get that straight? So don't get mad at us if you fill out your sheet that way and we ask you some questions about that. Because we really want to know that you understand the gospel. That's why we're here. We're not messing around. We're not playing games. People's eternity is hanging in the balance. And I'm asking you the question, have you been changed and made new from the inside out? Has this transformation happened in your life? Or are you just faking it and going through the motions? Because this is what true Christianity is. This is the type of Christianity that is going to survive when the persecution heats up or when your suffering heats up in your life or when your struggles heat up in your life or when your marriage is hard. The only type of Christianity that's actually going to survive those type of trials, Peter is saying, is the type of Christianity that's genuine, that's real. When a person has been consecrated, set apart, not by any person or any religious system, but by the Holy Spirit himself. First evidence. The Spirit sets us apart. Secondly, Jesus begins to lead us. Peter says these exiles, they've been foreknown. They've been sanctified these by the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Here's what's true. We are all born with this nature that is bent on living life how we want to live life, on doing what we want to do, on obeying our own most deeply held desires, and it's complicated by the society that we live in because what our society says is, that living based on your deepest desires is the meaning of your life. And to deny your desires is actually to ruin your life and to not be true to yourself. And Peter's saying the way of following Jesus is much different than that. Rather than obeying and listening to your own desires as what you should do, you deny your desires, take up your cross every day, and follow after Jesus. The reason it feels like a cross is because our flesh, 
Our old sinful nature is still at work within us. And so you become a Christian, it doesn't mean you no longer have sinful desires. It means now you have competing desires with your sinful desires. And so you are engaged on a daily basis in a fight for your life. And the only way to win that fight is to get in the word. Because the word is the word of Jesus. And in the word, he gives us commands. And commands are not meant, contrary to popular belief, to ruin your life. They're meant to bring you into paths of flourishing and paths of righteousness. And if it doesn't seem to you that way right now, you experience the commandments of God to be a burden, Jesus wants to walk beside you and help to lift that burden, help to take away the consequences that sin has brought into your life, and he wants you to experience the joy of obedience to him. This isn't always easy. I was reminded of this. I was out in Ohio this last week on vacation, and at one point, we were playing with some various balls in the front yard. So we had a basketball out there, one of those big bouncy balls. And somebody just, you know, as it's fun to do, just picked up that big bouncy ball and just punted it as far as they could. And there was a little bit of wind, and so it rolled down the road, and it rolled into this yard. And as kids do, my kids just took off running after this ball, which I was fine with because it's kind of off the beaten path, wasn't a real dangerous road. And they were walking toward this ball. And my little Gabe, three years old, cues a button, was leading the way, just running as hard as he could, like, I am going to get this ball, you know. And I look off in the distance, and there is a pit bull and two Alaskan Huskies running to get the ball at the same time from within the yard. And so, as you can imagine, I go into dad mode, and it's like, Gabe, stop! Emma, stop! Luke, stop! It takes me 10 minutes to get through the names of my kids. But I'm just yelling at anyone that I can. And it's like, you see this moment in my kids' body language, like, am I going to listen to dad or am I going to listen to me? Because I want the ball. And thankfully, they listen to me. When Jesus tells us to obey his commands, he is doing it for our good. He's saying, stay out of the yard. I don't want you to get hurt. I have perspective that you don't have. Listen to me. My question to you is, which of God's commandments feel like chains to you? Which of his commandments are you rebelling against in your heart? Are you turning against? And if you're really honest with yourself, it's ruining your life. You might experience pleasure for a short time in disobeying Jesus, but the pleasure is momentary and the burden of guilt lasts for a lifetime. In what ways are you turning away from Jesus and turning to your own desires and experiencing consequences? Or what kind of sin are you stuck in right now that you know if you continue in this pattern, it's going to lead to disastrous consequences? Guys, turn back to the word of God. 
Turn back to obedience to Jesus. And again, it's not that we live lives of perfection. That's certainly not true. But if there is not a pattern of obedience trending in the right direction in your life, you really do have to ask yourself the question, have I experienced the inner transformation that the Bible is talking about? Do I really know Jesus? The Bible calls us to work out our faith with fear and trembling. There's moments as Christians where we need to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Are you in the faith? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Not just believe in me. Obey my commandments. Are you walking in obedience to Jesus' commandments? Okay, guys. There's been this hard call. I hope you hear Jesus speaking to you, contextualizing this message to you directly. And I hope that there's rising in you conviction of specific sins. And you begin to think in your conscience, oh no, what do I do with my sin? Which is, I think, why Peter ends this introduction by reminding us that Jesus purifies us. He not only says, that we have been brought into God's family for obedience to Jesus, but also for sprinkling with his blood. Which means this. Even though God has known us before the foundation of the world, even though we've experienced this deep inner transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit, even though we're seeking to walk in obedience to Jesus' commandments, without exception, we all fail. On a daily basis, we're prone to wander away from Jesus' commandments. We're prone to do our own thing, to go our own way, to neglect God's word. God's grace does not give us a license to sin. I never want the message at this church to be, God has saved you, so do whatever you want. God has saved you. Work out your salvation. Seek to obey him. But on the path of obedience, we have to know that Jesus loves us and that he covers us with his blood. Now, what Peter's really doing here is he's pulling from a lot of different Old Testament imagery. And in the Old Testament, it's clear that there is no forgiveness of sins without blood. It's the whole message of the book of Leviticus. And in fact, when the people of God are initiating into covenant with God, Moses at Mount Sinai sprinkles them with blood. But you think about this. This is strange. Okay, just imagine the scenario, right? You're out, you know, digging in your backyard and you're covered with dirt from head to toe. You know, you've, you've been wiping the sweat with your, with your hand, you know, when you get the dirt on there. And, and there's just dirt everywhere. And you come back up to the house and your spouse is standing there 
or a friend or whatever, and you're looking for something to cleanse yourself with, and they're like, I've got this bowl full of blood. Like, I'm telling you guys, that is the last thing I'm sprinkling on myself to cleanse myself with, right? Like, you get cleansed with blood. How does that work? Do you know what? I think that the imagery in the Bible and the message of Christianity is intentionally paradoxical. When we think about blood cleansing us, it simultaneously is absolutely ridiculous to us. And we begin to go down this train of thought, I hope. That for as ridiculous as I have been, and how stupid I've become, and how far I've strayed off God's path, the way of salvation must be drastically different than anything that I would think up. See, in every other religion, there's no such thing as being forgiven by grace. You've got to work your way back. You've got to promise to do better. You've got to climb your way to heaven. You've got to reach nirvana. You've got to follow the fivefold path. You've got to pray five times a day. Whatever it is, you have to earn your salvation. And in Christianity, you come back to Jesus moment by moment, every single day. And he says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Okay, still don't believe me. Here's what Peter wrote to these specific people dispersed throughout this region. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You see what's so crazy about this? Often we imagine the people that the apostles are writing to in the New Testament as being very different than us and being more cleaned up religious types. He is telling Christians not to participate in orgies. These people were tempted by the same things that we're tempted by. They were made out of the same stuff that we're made out of, and they made the same mistakes that we make. And Peter is saying, Jesus' blood is for you. And I'm saying, Jesus' blood is for you, for your real sins, for your most perverted sins, for the worst things that you've ever done, thought, said, and wanted to do. You can come back to Jesus. He is a God of grace. Let me end this way. A weird and one of my favorite songs says this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's pray. Jesus, 
we want to be obedient to you during our time of exile on this earth. We often feel that we are not home, that we are citizens of another place. And yet we forget that so often. We stray away from you. We begin to do whatever we want to do. And we need the cleansing of your blood, the filling of your spirit, the reminder of your love. Would you equip us for today to walk with you, to love you, to enjoy you? In Jesus' name, amen.